0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post.
1: Hi, this is Tracy Jan calling from The Post. I'm a president from Hi, Hi, it's Robert Devon at The Washington
0: Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, March 27th. Today, the unintended consequences of closing schools, a digital divide with online learning, and parenting during a pandemic.
2: Within the last hour, Oregon Governor Kate Brown ordered a statewide closure of all K-12 schools starting Monday.
1: Breaking news out of North Idaho. School is now officially out for... An- Dallas
3: ISD. This is actually a copy of the letter. Here in Chicago. On Tuesday of this week,
2: schools were closed through March 30th. I know it is difficult for Mississippi families when schools are shut down. Honestly, if we have our kids in our classrooms, we're more likely to get more learning accomplished.
4: So something like 55 million children are impacted by school closures right now. And it's not just their education that's impacted. It's so many areas of their lives. My name is Mariah Balingit, and I'm a national education reporter for The Washington Post. Closing schools is not just about losing academic time. For a lot of kids, it's about health and safety. These school closures could have a dramatic negative impact on the well-being of a lot of children. So what is
0: life like right now for all these kids who aren't in school and in theory won't be back for many weeks or potentially many months?
4: You know, in my conversations with educators, and my brief conversations with teenagers, life is so uncertain right now. I think just like it is for all of us, We don't know when we're going to go back to work. We don't know when we're going to get to see our friends. They don't know when they're going to go to school. They don't know if they are going to have a prom in Elk Grove, California, for example. The superintendent made the decision to cancel prom literally hours before it was supposed to start. And then there's also a lot of uncertainty around academics. States and school districts are really in very different places in terms of how prepared they are for this and in terms of just making decisions about what they're going to do. Some states, for example, in Oklahoma, they announced that they would require schools to have remote learning, and other states have not offered that kind of guidance. So I think there's just a ton of uncertainty, not just among kids, but also among teachers and administrators. And then what about school lunches? For
0: kids who rely on school to get one or two meals out of the day,
4: How what is happening to them? I think one thing that the closures have done is helped a lot of people appreciate just how much schools do for children. Before this pandemic, schools were serving something like 22 million lunches every day to children who came from households that were poor enough to get them for free. A lot of children were getting breakfast, lunch, and dinner at school. So I spoke to the superintendent of Los Angeles Unified School District.
3: I'm Austin Butner, superintendent of Los Angeles Unified School
4: District. That is the second largest school district in the country.
3: We set up a charitable fund to support students and families most in need. In ordinary times, we serve a million meals to our students each day, or more than a million extraordinary times. They probably need more. Of the meals we're serving, about a third or two adults. We ask no questions. If there's a need, we're going to serve it. And with the support of the community, we're able to do that.
4: And a lot of those kids are now sheltering in place in households where there might not be enough food for everybody. A lot of kids also get medical care at school. There's school-based health clinics and school nurses they get their uh, mental health needs taken care of with school counselors and other school-based providers. And I think one of the, the big things that I've been thinking about is the fact that for so many kids, school is the safest place for them. And I know it sounds sort of cliche, but for many kids who come from abusive homes or are returning to neighborhoods where they don't feel safe, closing the schools poses a risk to their well-being.
0: And how are teachers navigating this? Because for them, I mean, they're still working. They're still theoretically responsible for these kids. So how are they trying to stay connected, keep them safe, keep them educated, even though they can't actually be around any of their kids?
4: Every teacher I spoke to is experiencing a lot of anguish.
3: My name is Amy, and I'm a French teacher from Austin, Texas, so I teach high school kids.
0: Hi, my name is Ajay Shinoy. I am a, an assistant professor of economics at the University of California, Santa Cruz.
3: The most marked impact of the coronavirus so far has been that they have closed my school.
0: So I started to make plans for an online exam, and sure enough, uh, within a few hours of my making that decision, it was announced that we were suspending all in-person teaching and all in-person exams.
3: So of course, I'm not seeing my students. I'm almost caught up on my grading and starting to wonder how I'm going to continue teaching my five levels of French um, remotely.
0: (laughs) I don't know. It's just the best well-laid plans are basically being upended.
4: So I think that's the first piece. And one of the things that, again, this crisis has illuminated is how big a role that some teachers play in supporting the emotional well-being of kids. So some teachers, for example, were being pressed into, you know, rushing into academics right away. And they pushed back and said, we need to take care of our kids' emotional needs first, because In the end, this is sort of a universal trauma for everybody, and particularly for children who might not know what's going on and might have very little control over what happens in their lives. And then in terms of the academics, we're seeing a really, really wide range of ways of adapting. Some states and some school districts don't really have plans quite yet. They're likely to formulate them in the coming weeks, but it really depends on what the student body looks like.
0: So when it comes to different school districts and how they're navigating this and how they're basically trying to help kids get through this, what are some of the big problems that they're facing right now?
4: Well, one of the biggest problems is they have to figure out how to provide education equitably. And one of the big barriers to that is that not all kids have internet access or even a device to do online learning, for example. And so Some school districts, like Los Angeles, just spent $100 million purchasing Chromebooks to ensure that every child has a device to do remote learning on. But other school districts know that not every child is going to get a device and not every child has internet access. I think a lot of people are predicting that um, this crisis is really going to expose a lot of the inequities in education.
0: Mariah Belingit is a national education reporter for The Post.
1: You know, in so many parts of the country, we know that there are millions of families who either don't have access to high-speed broadband because the lines, the, the literal figurative lines that exist to people's homes aren't there, or because they can't afford it given the fact that broadband is high in some parts of the country. Tony Rahm covers tech policy for The
0: Post. He
1: spoke with producer Alexis Diao
0: about how the shift to online learning has exposed America's deep digital divide.
1: When you have people discussing what to do with students who are potentially going to be out of school for a long period of time, when so many of them can't get online, you certainly can't turn to things like online learning to fill the gap.
5: Can you give me a sense of where in the country we're seeing this play out, like where in the country this is a big problem?
1: The funny thing is it's everywhere. I mean, we think of the digital divide, which is what we call the difference between those who have access to the internet and those who don't, uh, as something that disproportionately affects rural Americans. And that's true. It's much harder to get internet connectivity out in some of the hardest to reach parts of the country. So in those parts of the world, you're less likely to see online learning and distance learning being something that's put to use during the coronavirus outbreak. But it's even just in our backyards. It's in the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area. It's in major urban centers in the United States because it's not in the case that people there don't have the ability to get online. It's because they may just not be able to afford it. And so one of the people I talked to was uh, a chief of staff in Prince George's County public schools who told me that, yeah, there are parts of the state that have internet. Much of the state in Maryland has internet, but there are many students who simply cannot afford it. So the digital divide is something that surrounds us. It's not specific to one particular part of the country.
5: So if you're a student or you're a family that can't afford broadband internet or you basically can't get online, are you just out of luck?
1: I would say two things to that. First, there are a lot of school districts that pumped the brakes as they were figuring out what to do in the midst of the coronavirus outbreak because they knew their students couldn't get online. And as a public school, you have to be able to provide education to everybody. You've got to satisfy Every single student, including those who have special needs. So they literally can't just say, you know, we're only going to serve some students and not others. Uh, And in some schools, we've seen creative applications of this, like for instance, schools that have allowed students without internet to access their assignments over paper. Uh, That being said, we have seen a number of efforts by telecom companies in recent weeks to help people who aren't online get online. And so two companies in particular would be Charter, which offers a Spectrum, that's the name of its internet service and Comcast, which has Xfinity, and in both of those cases, the companies have offered uh, low-income Americans who can't afford internet free access for the next 60 days to their programs for low-income Americans. And so that's one of the things that we're beginning to see companies do to address the digital divide at this moment when so many people are out of school. But I got to tell you, if, if there was one piece of criticism I heard consistently in reporting a story, it's that it shouldn't have taken a pandemic. That's literally what somebody in Detroit told me, that these issues have been known for a long time, and perhaps these companies and the government should have stepped up far sooner.
5: And are there other issues that students and teachers are facing in terms of moving their classrooms online? Which I, I have to say this story resonates with me in a way because I have kids and they are having to learn online. It we're only at day two. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's it's yeah. imagine teleconferencing a classroom of three-year-olds it's bonkers.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and not every school is doing, you know, live teleconferencing. It's not like a teacher standing at a Blackboard broadcast to everybody on a Google Hangout or a Zoom video conference call. It's varied. We've seen some schools do um, that. We've seen some schools just put their assignments on the internet and, you know, use message boards, for instance, uh, which is more likely for the for the older set. But, you know, often in, in, in the course of reporting the story, what we heard is that schools just weren't prepared for this kind of thing. I mean, nobody really had in place a planned for what to do if school was out for months on end. And when you do that, when, 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 you, when you force people to, to operate on a distance learning model, you, know, you have to have curriculum. You've got to have lessons in place. You've got to have teachers who are trained to use the technology that you're implementing for them to talk to students in the first place. And so through no one's fault, uh, it, was, it was something that these schools have had to grapple with now is how to get online and how to teach lessons in an effective way.
5: So who was hardest hit by just this lack of access to the internet, lack of being able to like have the hardware, have the equipment to learn online, and also the lack of preparedness?
1: You know, the data tell us that the people who are hurt most from the digital divide are low-income Americans and people of color. Uh, this has historically been the case in the United States for many, many years now, and it's certainly true when we're talking about access to the digital tools necessary to do things like online education. And in a lot of cases, it's also Americans who live in rural areas, so where internet access or good coverage to wireless internet historically has been a bit sparse. And so I talked to one superintendent in a rural part of Pennsylvania for the story. superintendent told me he knows that his students don't have the right devices. I don't have access to the internet. They're in this rural area and they can't take advantage of some of the tools that their peers in other parts of Pennsylvania can. So just imagine that on a grander scale when we're talking about people who are out of school right now because of coronavirus.
0: Tony Rahm covers tech policy for The Post.
5: In about an hour and a half, I will go and pick up my kids from school, and they will henceforth stay here with us for as long as is needed, basically. And I'm wondering how this is going to work out. I'm not really sure.
0: A couple weeks ago, around the time that all of us at The Post were advised to work from home, schools in D.C. were canceled. Lexi from our team started keeping an audio diary of life at home with her two kids, Soul, who's eight, and Huck, who's three.
5: Two hours, we're, we're, two and
3: a half hours. We have a relationship that we have. I can't think of children. a bad
4: relationship. Uh, Soul is playing the violin. With the different states, I right, one or two questions. Does anybody have a question for the drink? folks up here?
5: All yeah, over yeah. my desk.
4: Then promptly
5: peed his pants. Thank you. I have one for you. All as well. while I'm tasked I, I with it, I, listening I I do one have to the president. I I yeah. It's still just day one, and there is a certain level of heaviness that is starting to set into my bones. The idea that I'm mothering children. Through a global pandemic and what that means for them. Okay, day two, first official day, Monday, March sixteenth. We're gonna go uh, try to implement a nap time. So. Oh, I don't wanna. No, no, no. Anybody- oh my God, I want to lay down so bad. <laughs> Okay, so it's day I have no idea of self quarantine from home, and this is the sound of my office.
1: So, so yeah, it is Wednesday night, it is
5: 2020. 20. Way past your bedtime, yes, it is the year twenty twenty and there's an outbreak There's an outbreak of uh, the coronavirus, okay, so things have been a little crazy,
4: yeah of course,
5: um, like at home. Can you tell me like what has changed? Like we're doing online meetings for school at ten in the morning now, and I want to sleep in. But have you gotten to sleep in since you've been home? Uh, Only on Monday. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, and um, but like also you haven't had, like, been to school since last Friday, right? Yeah. And how has your time been? I miss my friends.
1: (laughs) What? (laughs) Uh, No, I know you. Okay, we'll do it later. I I mean, I would like us to eat more lentils and beans.
5: It's almost 11 a.m. It's Friday, the first full week, and... Huggy no! Don't play with that power tool. After a few days, I've kind of learned that rain or shine you got to get some fresh air. (laughs) This is what it's like to work from home with kids. It's just you kind of lower your expectations in every single way. I'm being the best mom that I can be. I'm being the best radio producer I can be. And... with as much grace as possible. Hi, how are you? So I realized that (laughs) this feeling of being overwhelmed at this moment is something that parents everywhere are experiencing. And I'm lucky. I have a job that lets me work from home. But I wanted to hear how other people, other mothers, are managing this. So I started with post-Beijing correspondent Anna Fifield. Mm -hmm.
4: Yeah, well, I mean, it's I'm in New Zealand. I'm have been in isolation for
3: 9 days because I haven't seen my child in 7 weeks. So,
4: I had to evacuate him from China and he's with my mom and going to school in New Zealand. So now I've I have to do 14 days of isolation before I can see him.
5: How how did you like handle explaining kind of like What was happening and
4: like what would happen? And I guess because it's been unfolding for us, it's been easy to talk him through it bit by bit. I guess, and that once I knew he was safe and I could reassure him. And like he and he's seen, I send him photos of me with my mask on and my latex gloves out reporting and things. So he knows that I've been taking care and everything.
1: Okay. Uh, My name is Alexia. I'm an Uber driver, a single mom daughter helen eighth third grade helen's pretty much spent like a week at my neighbor's house my friend's house which was good anyway because i realized like i'm definitely putting myself at risk so the safest thing is to like honestly have her away but she knows she needs to log online when they have their google classroom meetings, and she's got her chromebook and her ipad and her nintendo switch and as long as like electricity doesn't go down she'll survive So
3: my name is Asia Grega. I live in Munich, Germany, and um, I'm American, married to a German, and we have a six-year-old son, and we are quarantined in our home for the next five weeks. We get eight and up, we all go downstairs, we sit in a little circle, and we sing songs, and then we take a piece of paper and we write out what the plan is for today, and we split up our day, the eight-hour day. That's how we're splitting it up. But at the same time, I'm like, this is time that we are being gifted. This is how I choose to look at it. And my husband was saying the same.
0: Alexis Diao is a producer for Post Reports. now, one more thing. We've been asking listeners to share their stories of how the coronavirus outbreak is affecting them. And we heard from a lot of seniors in high school and in college about what it's like to have a very different kind of senior year than what they were expecting.
4: I'm Andreas, currently a senior, and I live in a town called Sammamish, which is about 30 minutes east of Seattle.
2: Hi. Hi. My name is Isabella Lanford. I'm an 18-year-old high school senior from Charlotte, North Carolina.
4: Um, and it's kind of terrifying seeing all these things happening. On the one end, you have the virus, but on the other end, you have all of these things that you expect from senior year.
2: We had senior prom coming up.
4: We don't know if prom's happening.
2: So I had just rented a designer dress, which I had to cancel because they canceled our prom
4: and we definitely don't know if graduation's happening.
2: And now I will be receiving my high school diploma in the mail.
4: Which is something I never thought I'd be worrying about.
2: It sucks, just frankly, it sucks. My friends and I are all extremely upset and I'm not bashing the quarantine or anything. I understand why it's important, but not getting the final high school events and activities that most people remember for the rest of their lives. This is what I'll remember, and this is what my peers will remember, and it's weird, it's different.
3: My name is Jody Lesner, and I am a senior at Barnard College at Columbia University in New York City. I took for granted the small things that gave me comfort in my daily life like joking around in the dining hall with my teammates, having delirious late-night debates about the future of politics with my sweetmates, or getting a beer with friends when writing our theses got too complicated. Now, these moments are over. My friends are now dispersed across the country and the world. I do know that even amidst the chaos and the noise, I am very lucky, but I still mourn the loss of my final months of college. I'm currently sitting at my childhood desk to record this, the same desk where I received the news that I had been accepted into Barnard's class of 2020. I truly could not have predicted at that time, or even two weeks ago, that it will be at this desk that I finish my senior thesis, something that was supposed to be a seminal moment in my college experience. Okay, time to get back to my thesis now.
0: That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Maggie Penman. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Muhammad, Jordan Marie Smith, Renny Sprenowski, and Ted Muldoon, who also composed our theme music. The Post Director of Audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from the Washington Post.